Welcome to B1 Bites. Today we are with Ashwin from Sapien, which is a medtech startup that is so interesting mm-hmm. in a relatively new industry. Ashwin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can you quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And also thanks for inviting me on campus, actually. It's been a while since I've been to main campus. Um, yeah, so um, I'm Ashwin Ramachandran. I am the co-founder and CEO at Sapien. We started around nine months ago in the male fertility industry. Just to give you some context as well, Sapien is an at-home male fertility diagnostic built to ensure men can access fertility and reproductive care from anywhere at any time. Uh, we really got started because my uncle had a male fertility diagnosis and ended up spending around $80,000 through the IVF process in the United States. And being Indian, we never really spoke about it in the family quite as much as we'd like to and it, it was obviously a really big shock because as a man you sort of grow up uh, assuming that you can have children and that's that's a choice but you never really grow up to think whether or not you you are allowed to or you, you perhaps can mm-hmm. and i was having a conversation in the back of an uber with a friend and my uber driver turned around and told us he'd spent a hundred thousand dollars in 10 years of his life yeah, wow. and that was sort of the beginning of how we got started in this space yeah wow that is an industry that not many people are familiar with at all but it's so prominent in everyone's lives as well and I guess it's also quite a sensitive conversation to have with people. How, how do you approach, you know, having this kind of conversations with people? Uh, it's sort of, we're desensitised to it to a great extent, right, as, mm. as founders in the space. I remember vividly having a conversation with an investor in a cafe a few months ago and I was yeah. talking to him about retrograde um, ejaculation mm-hmm. and to me it was the most normal conversation I've had that week and everybody else turned around and watched us like we were having something, yeah, a conversation about something that's absolutely terrible. I think those conversations are what make us realise time and time again that it is a conversation that, that is, has a lot of stigma associated with it. Because I have this conversation every day, it becomes a lot easier for me to go out and approach someone and have this conversation with them. I think inevitably also there is no possible way to destigmatize a conversation unless you're willing to be bold about it and have a conversation and initiate that conversation. Yeah. So we're sort of taking that approach at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And I'm assuming you guys had to do lots of market research before you know, getting started and everything, how did you kind of go about that and making people a bit more comfortable with talking about the space? Um, Big mistake we did at the very, very beginning was go out on the street and have a conversation with men, Mm. right? And we just assumed that when we opened up about male fertility, people would be open to having a conversation with us and would entertain the questions that we had to ask them about it and their, their experience with pregnancy. Unfortunately, if you've ever stopped a man on the street and had a conversation about male fertility, you'll very yeah. quickly realise that they'll make a sex joke or walk away and get really angry with you and think about, you know, it, it is not something that they're accustomed to having a conversation about. Mm-hmm. So we had to take sort of a very different approach to it. And that sort of came after we had a, an investment committee meeting sitting across from eight different middle-aged men and no one said a word after my pitch. And I sort of walked away really anxious mm-hmm. going, this is probably never going to work because no one's engaging with us. Mm-hmm. And then five of them reached out to us on LinkedIn and right after and told us they'd like to make an investment because they have had fertility issues and know someone else that's had a fertility issue. Yeah. And then we realised maybe the perha- uh, perhaps the best way to sort of destigmatise a conversation, have a conversation with men about it, uh, would be by being empathetic to them and, and addressing it through a discrete channel. We went up on Facebook advertising uh, platforms and within a couple of weeks we had over 30,000 people join our wait list, right? And, and then it became a l- relatively easy because we're communicating with them via email channels, retargeting and a whole range of other things. Yeah. 
that made it more likely for them to engage with the conversation that we were trying to initiate. And I know you recognised the problem, first of all, through your uncle. How did you, from that moment on, how did you approach turning that into a tangible solution with reinvent or inventing this kind of technology at home and marketing that as well? How did you go about that to get started? Yeah, so uh, the big problem with sperm samples essentially is that they die one hour after you collect them. Mm -hmm. So motility within sperm is, is a time-limited, um, time-bound parameter, right? So effectively, for every hour that passes after a sample is collected, anywhere from 5 to 20% of um, samples go immotile. And so we had to identify whether or not, you know, the approach to solving this problem through a startup would either be to build the Uber of fertility, whereby we'd, we'd send people home to collect a sample from you mm -hmm. and take it to a laboratory, and that has to be done within an hour. And that wasn't necessarily going to work, in our opinion, because uh, my Uber Eats order doesn't get to South Bank in an hour, so it, it, uh, it almost will never make it to a laboratory in under an hour, mm -hmm. right? Especially where healthcare samples are involved, there is a level of caution that needs to be undertaken, and there's a number of people can't be as excessive as Uber in general. So we sort of had to count that idea quite quickly and then thinking about the other idea and the other only solution that we could think about at the time was to somehow make the sample last longer, mm -hmm. right? As whack as it sounds today, that was sort of the only approach we'd had in mind to make this work. And so we ended up repurposing an existing clinical medium, which when added to sperm samples basically extends the shelf life from one hour to three, four days, right? And that came from over 10 weeks of testing with a laboratory based out of uh, Australia. Mm -hmm. And we'd effectively had to go back to first principles and ask the question, where does sperm exist more than one hour? And that's usually the female reproductive tract. So we basically engineered or re-engineered the conditions of the female reproductive tract outside in vitro. What yep. would you say was the most challenging difficulty that you faced along the way of founding this company and obviously growing it to such a large wait list right now? And how did you overcome that? I think there's there's quite a few challenges, right, working within the startup industry in a sense. But at the same time, I think the two primary things that we sort of had a massive issue about was one, destigmatizing the conversation at the very, very beginning. We definitely needed to go out to men and have this conversation from a bored perspective. Mm -hmm. We can't be a discreet brand, right? Yeah. The more discreet we are, the less we're sort of acting in our favour and the, the more disservice we're sort of creating within the environment of male fertility or fertility in general, both for men and for women. So having that conversation, being bold about it, it took a lot of time for us to understand how bold we can be and, you know, how much retaliation we'll face from men for being as bold as we are today. And there was a lot of testing that we needed to conduct to sort of understand everything from what kind of messaging men like to what kind of messaging is appropriate and what kind of messaging works with the existing medical system and the different nuances within the medical system for both male and female fertility that needed to be considered to be able to make this product a success today. Um, second thing, obviously, is fundraising in Australia. Um, medical technology startups don't necessarily have the best luck fundraising locally, fundamentally because I think, given that Australia has free healthcare, we lack an understanding of... We, we, we lack healthcare expertise, essentially, right? Um, most of us don't know the difference between PBS, Medicare, and a whole range of other schemes that we're inherently subject to. And not a lot of people in Australia... My, my first big culture shock when I moved to Australia was the fact that a lot of people that I was talking to didn't understand how good their healthcare system was and what universal healthcare system really is or what, what, what benefits they're subjected to that other people don't have access to. The only thing we understand is our healthcare system is better than America's and <laughs> I, I think that's OK to understand, but at the same time, I think we're sort of uh, ignoring how good we have it here. 
And off the back of that, a lot of um, medical technology venture funds uh, in Australia don't necessarily have the right kind of expertise to invest early in medtech companies and generalist VCs don't necessarily have the appetite or haven't necessarily invested in medical technology in the past. So our fundraising journey was entirely driven by American venture funds and venture funds overseas. So it was, um, it was a tough one because we, we felt like we're putting shit, uh, we were pu- pushing shit up here in Australia for a little bit. And uh, we moved overseas to raise our round and we've been more successful in doing that. Mm. Were you living overseas because you mentioned you moved to Australia? Yeah, I've actually lived in six different countries and eight different cities around the world before I moved to Melbourne. Yeah. Mm. What are some of the the most favourite cities, I guess? I'd say Melbourne is definitely my favourite city um, because, well, I mean... I say that, I don't know if it's because I've been here long enough that I've just been used to all the crap that Melbourne has to offer. But at the same time, I think uh, being in Melbourne, the biggest culture shock outside of what I've just told you was the fact that people were leaving offices at 4.30pm or 5pm on the dot. I used to live in the United States before this and um, I used to live in Chicago and people used to leave work quite late. And for me coming to Melbourne and watching people leave work early and sort of thinking about going to the bar at 5.30pm on a Friday, it definitely felt very different. And that was very confusing for me, and it still is, which is why um, I find it really difficult to be able to do those things in Melbourne today. But I do think Melbourne has a good mixture of hardworking and laid-backness, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, th- I think it's an interesting city to be in. I did very much like Sydney when I first came to Australia um, because I thought it was very similar to the way we worked in America. But now that I've been back recently, I cannot say the same about Sydney. <laughs> uh, but yeah, outside of Australia, I think I think Chicago is a fantastic city to live in. Mm, would you say that your working style is similar to the general Melbourne working culture, or are you? I don't think so. Chicago, yeah, <laughs> Chicago working vibes. I I, um, I I don't want to generalize in general, but but I think effectively my working schedule is more American than I than I'd like to admit. Um, I do work extensively long hours, long days, and most often you'll find me working anywhere from 12 to 18 hours a day. Wow. Yeah. And my schedule sort of also aligned to the US time zone because a lot of our venture funds and, and program participants are in the United States. So I have to wake up at 2 a.m. on most days. And even if I don't have to, I'll just end up waking up because sort of my, my body clock's yeah. set to wake up. So my sleep schedule is biphasic in many, many occasions and I'll, I'll just end up not sleeping properly and just working all day. Wow. Do you find yourself burning out at all or are you so driven about what you guys are doing about your mission that it's not really a problem? I am very driven, but I think you can be driven and still burn out, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't have an experience burnout in, in the last few years fundamentally because I tend to work towards energy management quite efficiently. Um, if I've worked a really hard week and I'm finding myself really tired, I'll stop working. Mm-hmm. When I say I work 18 hours a day, it doesn't have to be all at one stretch. And also if I find that I'm really exhausted at the end of the week, I'll just take a short trip out to Sydney or a different city or just get a hotel room in Melbourne just so I can forget um, that reality is a thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, it, it all is, it's always about energy management. I don't necessarily think work-life balance is the way to do things. Mm-hmm. And because that's the case, I don't necessarily burn out. I also have um, a lot of time to myself to to do whatever. I watch Netflix or go outside and have have, have a coffee or whatever. And in terms of the med tech industry, are you specialising? Were you specialising before, for example, in university around the medicine industry, or is your, is your co-founder a, like an expert in this industry? 
I actually do not come from a, an academic background in medicine. Mm. I went to University of Melbourne to study finance and accounting. Um, so it's completely different to, to what you'd think about when you see a medical technology entrepreneur. But in saying that, quite a lot of healthcare entrepreneurs are not necessarily from a healthcare background. Uh, my co-founder is from the pharmaceuticals industry and I have extensive experience working in the life sciences commercialization space and pharmaceutical space. So we understand broadly the necessities of building, like the requirements of building a healthcare company in in Australia. And even overseas, we've launched products within the novel sort of diagnostics and therapeutic space in the United States and 26 other international markets. So we broadly understand what the healthcare industry is and the nuances of the healthcare industry as well. Uh, we just don't have a background in medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned you had experiences in the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I actually started my career at the University of Melbourne within the Technology Transfer and Intellectual Property Division. Mm-hmm. So sort of the University of Melbourne's Corporate Venture Fund, uh, Venture Capital Department, and effectively what the university's um, Technology Transfer Division does is look at technologies that the university's been developing over the last X years and think about what we can do with that technology, whether it's um, about commercialising the technology and building spin-out companies from the University of Melbourne or licensing it out to big pharmaceutical companies and the likes. So I spent a sizable amount of time in the technology transfer industry sort of thinking through how we can license technology and that goes all the way from thinking th- thinking about clinical trial requirements and licensing to pharmaceutical companies and how we'd effectively go ahead and build a company and what sort of the compliance requirements of the back of that would be for us. So I had a full holistic understanding of what the industry was like and also had really good exposure to the different nuances of the medical technology and compliance industries. With this venture capital job in Melbourne University, how did you secure this job and what kind of got you into the venture capital field? Uh, I've actually been in the venture or investment space for quite a while, but the University of Melbourne um, as a limited partner and general partner at a few other venture funds. I work quite closely with Startmate on on a few different programs and also I was one of the early employees at Birchall, which is an equity crowdfunding platform in Australia, allowing retail investors to invest in private companies like Sapien from $50.00. Um, so I've been in the investment space for quite a, quite a few years, but I think, um, well, I mean, effectively how I got in, I, I applied for a job. I didn't know what venture capital was. I didn't know what investments was. Um, I'd, I'd invested um, in stocks before. I'd invested in cryptocurrencies. Out of curiosity, I did no decision um, out of education. I made investments in the past before I started in the venture industry because other people were making those investments. I was quite naive and I spent a lot of money just investing in things to explore, you know, whether or not something was going to go up or down. I didn't necessarily even understand that I would, I could lose my money, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it so happened that I did make a little bit of money doing that and experimenting with multiple different types of channels, um, different types of instruments, and then ended up going to University of Melbourne studying finance, which I don't necessarily think has contributed anything towards my venture career uh, or my, my career in startup, for instance. But I think um, effectively, um, venture capital, the more you, you sort of expose yourself to the, the startup ecosystem and the more you expose yourself more broadly into the general ecosystem of you know th- thinking about economies and how you could scale, build products and go out to market – the more likely it is that a venture fund will look at you as a promising candidate to come join. Um, typically, people have a background in finance, but that doesn't stop anyone else from going to the venture field. Would you say you learnt most of your VC skills on the job, given that you know finance didn't really teach you uh, what you had to know? <laughs> uh, yes, on the job, um, but also on the side, um, investing in businesses and having conversations with entrepreneurs from time to time. Mm-hmm. 
that was perhaps more valuable to me than even working in the venture capital ecosystem or the investments ecosystem. Uh, the biggest part of my job that I enjoyed um, at Birchall was was having the opportunity to sit across from entrepreneurs at different stages um, in sort of the life cycle of building a startup and thinking through how I could be supportive and looking at the areas where they needed support and thinking through what kind of difficulties they were going to encounter and listening to how they were thinking about go to market. That was way more valuable to me than sort of sitting in as an analyst and doing financial analysis and looking at financial projections and critiquing market sizes. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess you've had a lot of exposure to different types of startups. What are some characteristics or traits of certain startups that stand out to you as ones that would be more successful, more likely to be successful than others? Um, I think at the end of the day, one of the, the attributions, and this is going to be super cliche of me to say, but your team matters more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think um, w- when I say team, I don't necessarily mean forget product market fit. I think a good team will ultimately understand that product market fit is an important aspect and something to focus on, that a problem is an important sort of aspect of building a startup. You need to be very inclined to understanding the problem space and a good team would understand that that is important. But when I say a good team, I also mean someone with um, a group of people that, that have the necessary experiences. I think enthusiasm is definitely important within startup, but you can be an idiot and enthusiastic and that's not always beneficial, right? Mm-hmm. I think all of us have learned significantly through our careers and sometimes it's beneficial uh, to, to rely on some level of experience, but at the same time it's important not to over-index. Mm-hmm. Right? It's important not to let uh, your experiences dictate the future of your startup, but it's also important to understand that experience can be beneficial. Uh, You do see quite a lot of startups utilising interns to grow businesses, and I don't necessarily know if that's the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. I think enthusiasm is obviously really important. I think some level of expertise is important. And um, the ability to, to be scrappy, and I and I mean that very carefully, right? I think there's multiple different definitions of scrappy. I definitely do mean being resourceful is one of them and understanding the value of um, of investments, understanding when to raise. There's a whole range of things, right? I think m- most people, when they go into startup, they're very new to the concept of investment and raising capital. No matter how many podcasts you've heard before, no matter how many founders you've spoken to, the reality of things is dramatically drif- different to how you've sort of expected things to look like and ha- the, the picture you've painted in your head. Being able to circumvent what you know versus, you know, what you're sort of encountering for the first time is really important. Has there ever been any points where you really believed in a certain company, but because of the limited um, funds of the VC that you can't really invest in that one? Um, as, an, as, as an investor? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you do come across quite a lot of very exciting entrepreneurs on a continual basis. Mm-hmm. And I mean anyone from the age of, you know, 16-year-old entrepreneurs that you sort of see around doing amazing things versus, you know, 85-year-old entrepreneurs that are for the first time sort of being become excited about a new problem space and want to go out and prove themselves. So it's quite a lot of it, – it's an eclectic mix of people that you come across on a continual basis. And to be there having a conversation with venture capitalists already is quite scary. And a lot of founders put in quite a lot of effort to be able to position themselves in, in, in the best possible way. Um, 
do I wish I could invest in more people than I have? Absolutely, yes. But I think at the end of the day, I don't have as much money as I'd like to have and neither do venture funds. So both uh, in my capacity as an angel investor and as a venture investor in the past, I haven't been able to make investments in spaces um, that I've that I've always wanted to make investments in, in some instances. Um, and we have made investments in spaces where I've completely disagreed, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we've, we've lost some, we've gained some others, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. I was looking at your LinkedIn and I realised you actually invested in DoorDash as well as Robinhood. What was like your initial thoughts when you first came across these companies? Yeah, I, um, I'll give you a bit of a background on like how I got into the venture space in, in the first place. I actually started off venture investing very, very small checks. Um, a very small check, very, very first check that I wrote was for a company called Oculus, which was later acquired by Facebook. Right. Um, I think I knew nothing about venture capital. I was really, I mean, if it was up to me and no one gave me the right kind of guidance at the time, I would have put all that money towards buying an Oculus headset, like a VR headset. What is Oculus? (laughs) Uh, It's a virtual reality headset. Um, Have you seen the meta headsets that you, that, yep. So effectively, that's that's Oculus. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Um, They were raising, I think, 2013 it was. And a few of us decided to put in a very small amount of money, syndicate that money and um, make it look like a reasonable check when we put it in. And none of us knew anything. And uh, we were really excited about the space. We had we wanted to buy the product. We understood what the market was going to look like. And retrospectively, that's exactly what venture capitalists need to be doing. But I think we didn't know anything, which was sort of to our advantage. We just fell in love with the product and the problem that the entrepreneurs were solving um, the space and we were going to be customers and we thought it was a good use of money at the time. Uh, so we did. And then eventually off the back of that, a few other people from there knew the founders of DoorDash and then they knew the founders of Robinhood and eventually got the opportunity to invest in both those businesses and a range of other businesses as well. So I am very lucky to have the deal flow that I have today. But um, in saying that, I think people can start really small. People can invest from as little as $50 on, on crowdfunding platforms like Republic in the US and virtual in Australia. And, um, and see how those investments turn out. I mean, I think if you start investing small and you start realising that your investments are perhaps good decisions, there might be an opportunity for you to explore that a bit further. But yeah. in saying that, that's not legal advice or, <laughs> or financial advice for anybody listening. Um, but I am quite excited about most of the companies that I've, that I've invested in, obviously made quite a few mistakes. Um, but even those mistakes would have been valuable learnings for me because if I didn't make those mistakes, I wouldn't have learned how to invest. Mm. Um, it sounds a bit stupid to say, I mean, <laughs> but I think inevitably there were a lot of red flags and a couple of investments that, I, that I've that i made that I made off the back of um, the fear of missing out, so FOMO, mm. from other investors getting in, from other people that I know in my network getting in, and I felt like I was going to miss out on a really cool opportunity when I didn't fully buy into the problem space. Mm. And um, it, it didn't go that well. <laughs> what would you say are some of the red flags that you recognise and what are the biggest lessons that you have learned along making those mistakes? Um, the interesting thing about red flags is sometimes um, they, take a sh- they take the shape of like very good things. So it's really hard to, you know, differentiate or tell you exactly what red flags are important to watch out for because it depends on industry, it depends on a whole range of other things. But I think one thing that's really important is understanding um, the problem space. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, being really, really passionate about the problem space is really important. 
and um, following trends is perhaps not as important. Right, I, th- I think there is some value to following trends and understanding, keep keeping an eye out on what's exactly happening in the industry and making sure that you're not left behind. But at the same time, there are a number of entrepreneurs, particularly with the with the rise of the Web3 um, <laughs> sort of space, a lot of Web2 companies are disguising themselves to be Web3 offerings. Mm-hmm. So quite a few things. I made a few investments off the back of uh, fear of missing out on a trend. Uh, I've made a few investments in, com- in people that I didn't fully believe in because... Um, a large venture funds invested in them. I think it's important that angel investors or, or venture investors themselves like fully understand that they need to build conviction before they make an investment, regardless of how good the company could be to someone else. I think bringing it back to Sapien, you mentioned earlier that having a team that's really passionate and enthusiastic about what they're doing is so significant. What would you say has been your experience working with a co-founder? Um, really good. Right, I, th- I think um, ultimately both of us are in this because we care about the problem space. Mm. We've had experiences both within our family and ourselves when we tried to go get a male fertility test that were quite devastating and poor experiences that led to us sort of building really high conviction in the problem space. Mm. I wouldn't be doing this and I wouldn't have left my job um, to do this if I didn't fully think that this was the right space for me to go after and spend the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years of my life. Um, fundamentally because um, over the past year, even though we've got employees and we pay them, we haven't drawn a salary yet, mm-hmm. right? And we will so- shortly because w- there's only so long we can go without actually paying ourselves. But I think um, we're making quite a lot of sacrifices to do this. And it's important for us to continually be motivated, right? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs eventually um, start realising how difficult it is to run a startup when you start doing it and you sort of midway through it. Um, founders feel complete lack of motivation, and it's not unlikely that you will probably not raise any capital for the first few months of, of building a business. So you need to have a lot of validation. You need to be able to go out to market and prove something out before anyone's going to give you any significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. So we've had a lot of ups and downs and we've had a lot of issues that we've sort of had to overcome and we've had a lot of problems from a scientific capacity that we've had to overcome, including the fact that sperm samples die one hour after you collect them. Mm-hmm. So everything from, you know, scientific issues that we've had to overcome to financial issues and sort of thinking through the runway of the business, hiring people, onboarding them, every single day is a whole new challenge and it sort of builds up. And uh, it's always helpful to be in a team that can understand that, that that's going to be the case and that will support you through it. Mm, have yeah. you ever had conflicts with your co-founder? And if you have, how did you guys overcome it? Yeah, it would be a lie if I said we didn't. We've never had conflicts, or we've never disagreed on anything. We disagree on quite a few things, not just with my co-founder, but with my team in general. There's quite a few disagreements, things that you know, uh, everybody's got a different perspective given our experiences, and that's where we think we don't over-index on experience, but we do think it's important because um, when you when you think about expertise, the one thing that I love about expertise is it gives you a holistic understanding of what exactly is possible and what's not. But that's also what I hate about expertise, mm-hmm. right? Because you go into something going that's not possible, which is why I think sometimes people with no expertise crack problems better than people with expertise. But it's always important to to understand that that could be the case. And sometimes you're talking about something because you so you have so called expertise. And it's important to understand that it's, you know, it's okay to think outside of the box, which is a bit cliche to say again, but there's a lot of things about startup that you can't predict. Nothing's got a counterfactual. You never know when you make a particular decision whether or not it's going to be good or bad. Mm-hmm. There's obviously playbooks, like other businesses have done things in the past, but those things have been done by other people in other businesses in different contexts yeah. and by different teams. 
right? So executing becomes really, really important. We've obviously had a lot of conflicts from the perspective of disagreeing on a particular strategic direction, in which case we've got advisors on board to sort of advise us. And ultimately, the entire team understands that we're working towards making the business better, right? So if we're wrong about something, we're very happy to accept and sort of move on. And I think that's the type of culture that we're trying to build at Sapien. I think culture is so important for a workspace as well. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you and your co-founder and your team help each other through high and lows and continue your motivation and sustain that momentum. Yeah. Has there been a certain point where it was so difficult that it was like a make or break point? Um, from a conflict perspective? Mm, from a... I guess from a conflict perspective as well as just a general challenge that you guys faced. I, I think seemed impossible to I'll overcome. define conflict a bit differently, right? I mean, it, it wasn't one of those moments where we were fighting about something. It was actually mm. one of those moments where we thought we should have raised capital a lot earlier than we did, mm. right? That's obviously a conflict from a different perspective in that we we definitely felt very isolated from the ecosystem. We definitely felt very... Um, very unmotivated for a, for a short period of time, um, didn't lose uh, interest in the problem space in general, but at the same time, we just needed the capital to be able to progress, right? We can't just sit here falling in love with the problem space without any money to do anything whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So those conversations were quite difficult and those conversations, those times were quite difficult for us, both professionally and personally. And it affected us from so many different perspectives, all the way from, you know, how we worked with each other to how, how we sort of were able to fall asleep at night. Mm-hmm. Um, we couldn't fall asleep. We, we had to think very critically about the type of people we we're going to hire, you know, what the next steps of the business was going to look, how are we going to afford inventory? Uh, but it was also important at that point to sort of take a step back and go, we're still so passionate about this. We need to find a way and we need to be able to find a way to communicate our passion and our validation and traction to other people that are thinking about making an investment. And we also pushed back quite a bit with investors that were sort of taking their time to make a decision here. We wanted to make people uh, sort of, you know, we wanted to get people to a point where they either said yes or no, right? We didn't want them to sort of drag us along. And we, we had quite a few people do that in Australia for us. Um, so once those hard conversations were sort of had and we got investors involved and advisors involved, we, was, we were able to raise a substantial amount of capital to keep us going. How do you see the company progress in the future? And what is, I guess, the future of this industry? Yeah, it's uh, two very big questions, right? I think from the perspective of where we stand today, there's multiple types of customers we can service. With our first product, it's effectively to help people create life and that's what we're working towards. And that's a male fertility product that allows men to sort of understand from a reactive and proactive standpoint what exactly their fertility and reproductive care and, and health looks like. And that's a big goal in itself, fundamentally because um, access to reproductive care for a lot of men is not only available, it's not only not available, but also embarrassing and emasculating. So we're doing quite a lot of things in the space. And we think that's a big goal in itself. Um, but also on the back of that, we do have a lot of data that we have from people that are volunteering their data for the purposes of R&D. So quite a significant proportion of our customer base is quite happy to give us their healthcare information, of course, in compliance with GDPR and, of course, with all personal identifiable information removed from that database. Uh, male fertility is one of those spaces where there's not a lot of data and a lot of research institutions have access to the right kind of data in the space. Mm-hmm. So being able to utilise that data to build strong intellectual property in the space and sort of build a, uh, build a new age pharmaceutical in the fertility space is sort of what we're ultimately working towards. 
and the industry in itself is is just starting to sort of um, take shape. 2017 was the first time a lot of large companies were being formed in this space and pharmaceutical companies started taking this seriously off the back of an NIH report that spoke about male fertility. Um, so we're pretty new in that from an industry standpoint relative to the grand scheme of things, but at the same time, in such a short period of time, we've seen significant progress in this space. Large venture funds sort of take interest in the male fertility space and large pharmaceutical com- companies think about the space more carefully. Um, so I, I think the industry has very bright um, next steps and I think there's going to be more companies in the space that sort of evolve over a period of time and I think female fertility will sort of also start thinking about the male component because that's the only way we're going to progress as an industry. Yeah, and how long is your waiting list right now? And when are you guys thinking of launching? We do have a um, closed trial that we're conducting with paying customers at the moment. Uh, the wait list is just over 30,000 people and growing organically month over month uh, quite significantly. We are looking to launch within the next four weeks, so in an open market. Um, we're redesigning the packaging, we're thinking through the customer experience, we're thinking through compliance and, and a whole range of other things. So once all of that's sorted, which we anticipate will take another week to two weeks, um, we'll, we'll give us an, another two or three weeks to sort of get ready and, and launch the product. Mm. And well, how would you describe your role in Sapient, given that you're a CEO and founder? You yep. have to, I'm assuming, do a bit of everything from marketing to I don't know, R&D as well. How would you describe your role on like a day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, titles within startup uh, sometimes only to let other people know that you're the right person to talk to for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a title uh, because it allows my investors to hold me, um, you know, CC me as a point of contact for investment. Yeah. Uh, not particularly because um, I sit around telling people what to do as the CEO of the company. That definitely doesn't happen because uh, we're still very much operational as, as founders. And we will be for a very long time from today, right? Um, from the perspective, how, however, in, in saying that, I do think founders and people within the team have to have responsibilities that are quite clearly defined. Um, it shouldn't be that I um, am just doing things because I don't know what, what I need to focus on, but rather because I'm supporting someone else and doing what they should be focusing on. So areas of my focus, obviously, growth, fundraising, hiring and partnerships at the moment and my co-founder focuses on operations and distribution and and supply chain and we've got staff across operations and commercial strategy and um, marketing. How are you guys building your workplace culture given that that's such a crucial aspect to a successful company as well? Quite, quite, it's a it's a very difficult question to answer, right? I think workplace culture is a very important aspect of building a really good company and sort of allowing that company to scale into the future. And it's very important to define that culture really clearly today um, because every single company, uh, every single employee we add to the mix today is sort of having a significant uh, effect on the culture of the company given that the team is so small. Mm-hmm. And we sort of all combined defining the culture of the company we could say that we want to be friendly we could say that we want to be empathetic but if we're not practicing it that's sort of the type of people that we'll hire into the future so it's very important for us to define it today and in saying that I also think one of the core things we're looking for as as a team is being empathetic and it is very overused as sort of a statement or 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 a um an attribution that people look for within their culture, but at the same time, the reason why we need to be empathetic as a team is because we're solving a problem with significant repercussions for other people, and it's in the healthcare industry, and we not only define what it feels like 
you know, from a fertility standpoint, from men taking the test, but we're also in, in a great ex- to, to a great extent redefining the future of the fertility industry for both men and for women, mm-hmm. right? So being empathetic is really important, having those conversations with men and realising that sometimes we're going to be yelled at and we're going to be, you know, having those tough conversations with people, but it all comes from a very different, insecure spot. And we need to be able to address for that quite carefully through our branding and through our culture, the way we communicate and the way we're sort of talking about the business in general. Yeah. Um, that's one aspect of things. We also work towards product and product excellence. The reason why I say that is because ultimately with Sapien, when you buy the product, you're not going to the doctor. We are replacing the hospital experience. So the only and we, we need to be able to induce a level of trust and empathy and a whole range of other feelings through the offline experience that you sort of experience when you buy a product, right? So that, that's effectively what we need to be building towards. Um, and experience is an important thing and also the idea that we're working towards building a culture where we're collaborative as a team. Um, there's this benevolence and, and people are sort of working towards ensuring that we're okay, both from a professional and a personal standpoint. And bring it back to the overall startup landscape. Did you always want to be a founder or was... Um, the opportunity so clear to you that you had to pursue it? I didn't always want to be a founder. Well, I mean, I'll take that back. I always wanted to start a business of some sort. When when I was little, I was running little hobbies on the side. I was selling things to people, family mostly, that would buy them from me for exorbitant prices to support me. But I think I always wanted to do it. But at the same time, when I went to university, I was sort of um, in an environment where people really valued going into consulting and banking. And um, I I wanted to do exactly that. And I did that for a period of time. I, I went into investments. I went into consulting for a period. I thought about banking quite carefully <laughs> and I had a pretty bad interview experience with banking so I ended up not pursuing it but at the same time is is it was the pathway that I thought was set in stone for me um but it so happened that I um met a few really amazing founders through the journey and then um just joined a startup uh and thought I would see what it looked like because for me it was very clear that I was never going to um, pursue the type of career that I wanted to pursue working in consulting. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to change the world. I evidently did nothing doing consulting. I was um, just someone that companies hired to blame their inefficiencies on, right? Mm-hmm. So we, di- we didn't change much and I felt like that was uh, not definitely what I signed up for. So I decided to join a startup in the middle sort of to see whether or not that was for me because I had a recommendation from someone. I thought maybe I should just go ahead and give it a go. I spoke to the founders. I thought it was a good fit and then ended up doing it. I met so many founders through the process, uh, supporting them, building their company, thinking about their culture and raising capital that it sort of just felt like I really wanted to do it because I was so enthusiastic about their passion Mm. and that sort of helped me build mine. And I definitely echo in terms of within the commerce course, you kind of see banking and consulting is the only pathway that you have. Yeah. And when you went into consulting, would you say it was helpful in terms of learning a generalist perspective that you can then bring into startups? Um, if I were to post-rationalise my consulting experience, probably. Mm. But there's um, there's quite a lot of jobs that will give you that exact experience. Um working in a startup will most definitely give you the opportunity to become a generalist but of course you need to pick the right kind of role within a startup and the right kind of startup to be able to you know go into um consulting was helpful from the perspective of building brand equity right a lot of people when they saw a massive consulting firm on my resume 
inevitably just thought I fell into a different category of people and I think that's unfair but at the same time it's how people perceive other people and I think that was a big advantage that I had when I was going into startup because a lot of startups definitely wanted me for the brand name that I bought to their team. Um, I think there could have been better people that they hired, perhaps, but some startups just perceive um, consulting brand names as a, as a good addition to their team. Uh, it was good from that perspective and it was good from a general problem-solving perspective. There's a lot of things that we did on a continual basis and the exposure to different types of industries that I really enjoyed, um, but I could have sought that experience in a different place as well. Yeah. And I'm just thinking back to the conversation that we had beforehand about cold messaging people on LinkedIn. Yeah. I think you secured a research role at a university through that. Do you have any tips or advice on how to best cold message people? Yeah, I actually got my first research position at university through cold email. And then most of my career actually was off the back of a cold email as well, including my jobs in consulting. I sent cold emails out to partnership, uh, the partnership at the, fi- uh, at the firm and ended up uh, skipping nine rounds of interviews. Wow. Right. Um, I think it's important when you're sending out a cold email to personalise it and to be very clear and to have a lot of clarity when you're sending out the email. Don't write huge emails, personalise it and tell the team exactly what you're looking for, what you can contribute and it's important to have clarity on why you want that job or why you want the time from the person that you want to have a conversation with because you're asking a lot of someone that's, that doesn't even know you, Yeah. right? So um, the more clear you can be and the more clarity you can offer them, the more likely you are to be able to get some time or consideration from their end. And what would you say is kind of the success rate of getting a reply? Uh, my first year at year at university, I didn't know how to send cold emails. I sent quite a bit. I sent over 2,000 uh, LinkedIn requests and I heard back from five or six. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> but then I, over time, uh, wrote better emails um, and with my recent fundraising campaign with Sapien, we sent out quite a bit of cold emails. We've had around 70% open rate, mm. around, I don't know, 50% of people writing back. Um, when they write back, doesn't mean they're always interested. Sometimes they're not interested, but people write back sometimes. Right? The more you personalise your email and the more reason you give people to write back to you, they will probably write back. Because inevitably we're all trying to be nice people, even though some of us are not, right? <laughs> uh, we're all trying to be nice. We're all trying to support. We've all been supported in the past. If you give us a solid enough reason to reply to you, we'll probably try and do it. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think no worries at all. that's a really good way to wrap up our podcast. Thank you for bringing your expertise, talking about SAPI and being so open about every single question that I've been asking today. And we are really excited to see where Sapien goes in the future and we believe it has so much potential and beyond enthusiastic about where it's going to go. No, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It's been a while since I've been on campus. It's been a while since I've met people and had a conversation from a university capacity. So really, really looking forward to, to all of this. Yep. Amazing. And thank you so much, guys, for listening. And we'll see you next week.